You may be seated, if you will, open your Bibles to John chapter 17. Today we will conclude our study of what is called the real Lord's Prayer. And we will conclude our study by finishing um, the the third section of what Jesus prays. This third section is that which relates to those who will believe through the Word, through the testimony, through the ministry of His disciples. And I don't think we often are reminded of this, but you and I believe today in some way because of the ministry of these 11 men and the Apostle Paul and all of the other servants that have gone on before. Our faith has been passed on to us and that passing of the faith is rooted in the apostolic ministry that these men were about to undertake and is supposed to be lived out in context of what this passage teaches us about our relationships with one another and how we are connected to one another through Christ. So these things that Jesus is going to pray for all believers is not just for those who would come in direct contact with the apostles, but all believers throughout the post-resurrection church, which would be established in just a little over a month's time, to our present day today and continuing until the Lord returns and ends this world as we know it. So as we've already looked at, unity has been a major theme in what Jesus has prayed for these 11 men. Unity is a continuing theme that will get introduced to us in this section where Jesus prays for future believers who would believe through the ministry of these disciples. Read with me. In John chapter 17, we're going to read verses 20 through 26, and then I'll make some application of it. Verse 20 begins, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you, excuse me, love them even as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made them, excuse me, I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, in these verses that we're going to study together today, Jesus prays primarily for two different things. Roman number one, Jesus prays for unity. In truth. Verse 20, letter A, the first half of verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. And so Jesus is now identifying that this request is not for the eleven, but for the others. So he has mentioned previously three things that he is not praying for. In verse 9, he said he was not praying for the lost world. 
In verse 15, He wasn't praying for the disciples to be taken out of the world. And here, He is not praying just for these eleven men, but for all of the disciples who would come to know Jesus through their ministry. So Jesus is praying for the billions, yes, billions, who will come to know Him throughout the entirety of human history. When Jesus prayed this prayer, He prayed for you and I. When Jesus prayed this prayer, He prayed for the individuals who will come to know Him next week, next month, next year, assuming He doesn't delay in His return. So as Jesus prays for unity and truth, there's three things that we're going to see in this. Number one, we're going to see the source of unity. What is going to be the source of the unity that all believers are to experience together? Second part of verse 20, but for those also who believe in Me through their Word. Very easy to miss the significance of what is being said here, but the source of unity for all future believers is a belief and the revelation of Jesus through the Word of the disciples. Now if you remember, when we looked at the beginning part of this prayer, we would read together in verses 6-8, through so just look up a few verses in your open Bible, and here's what Jesus said at the beginning of His prayer for these eleven men. Verse 6, I have manifested or revealed Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your Word. They have remained faithful to Your Word. Verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything You have given Me is from You. Everything that He has said, everything that He has done, everywhere that He has gone, has come from the Father to the Son. Verse 8, For the words which You gave Me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from You, and they believed that You sent Me. Now the significance of what is being said here about the source of unity is that our unity is going to come through a common belief a consistent belief with what Jesus has revealed to these men as given to Him by the Father. So the manifestation of the Father, what the Father has revealed to these men and to the unbelieving world in His day, what the Father has revealed to these men through the life and the ministry of Jesus has convinced them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus has been sent by God and that He is the exact character and nature of God. When Jesus says to these eleven men, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. If you have known Me, you have known the Father. They didn't go off on their own and begin to deliberate about the truth of what Jesus has said. They believed it wholeheartedly. They never doubted it for a minute. And the significance of that is important because what Jesus has revealed to these men is exactly what the Father has given Him to reveal, and they have kept that Word, they have kept that revelation, they have been firmly committed to it, and nothing is ever going to change that in their life. Their loyal devotion to Jesus is expressed by their belief in the revelation of the Father through the life and the ministry of Jesus. So for all who will believe through the words of the disciples, 
we are to believe in the same manifestation, the same revelation that these men experienced. Our source of unity is a common, committed belief to the exact same revelation. So to believe in Him is to believe in the same revelation that these original disciples believed. What we believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was with God in the beginning. He was God incarnate. He was the atoning sacrifice for sin. He was raised and ascended into heaven. He is the only way to the Father. Right now, He reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And we longingly wait for His return and glory to receive us His bride. If you don't believe these things, you don't believe in the same revelation that these men were committed to. You see, what you believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world. You can believe that He was a good man. You can believe that He was a moral example. You can believe that He was an accurate teacher. But if you don't believe these things, then you don't believe what these original 11 men believed. And we would not be keeping the faith, the same commitment to this revelation. To not believe in these things would make genuine salvation incredibly difficult. You see, if we don't believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, then Jesus would have inherited the sinful nature that every human inherits from their father, passed on to them by Adam. If we didn't believe that Jesus was God incarnate, then He could not be the perfect sinless sacrifice. If we don't believe that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, then what is it that makes us clean in the sight of God? If we don't believe that Jesus was raised and ascended into heaven, then that means that Jesus is dead somewhere and the entirety of the Christian faith lies in deceit. If we don't believe that He is the only way to the Father, then His coming, His life and ministry, His death becomes insignificant and unimportant in our ability to know God the Father. If He doesn't reign in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and if He isn't the one who is going to come at some point in the future and receive to Himself His bride, then who is? You see, what we believe about Jesus makes all the difference in the world and it will determine our eternal destiny. There is no amount of religion. There is no amount of morality. There is no amount of ancestry that will ever negate our individual need to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and believe this same revelation that these 11 men were committed to, to the extent that all but one would die a martyr's death. So a belief in Jesus is going to come through the word of the disciples, which is what Jesus is praying, then what is that word going to be? Well, we remember in the prologue of this gospel, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. 
So the content of the Word is going to be rooted in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Word is going to be consistent with everything that they have seen, everything that they have heard, and the truth that the Helper that Jesus has promised is going to come will eventually reveal to them supernaturally. So they have this audible experience of everything that Jesus has said. They have this visual experience of everything that Jesus has done. They're going to have the internal experience of the Helper who reveals to them the eternal Word of God in such a way that everything they say and everything they do is going to be consistent with the Word that was revealed to them in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. So the word that is being alluded to is the pages we find in our New Testaments that expand upon and explain what the Old Testament was and how that fits into the life of Jesus and what Jesus did and how that fits God's eternal plan of redemption and what that means for us today. The word is consummated in the ministry of Jesus and it is completed in the pages of our Bibles. And this is why it's incredibly important that you and I have a committed belief in the inerrant, infallible, and eternal Word of God. If we don't have that kind of a commitment to the Word of God, then the revealed Word that we are going to believe in and stake our eternal destiny in is going to be suspicious. If it isn't rooted in the Word, which is rooted in the life and the ministry of Jesus, what is our belief going to be rooted in? To not believe in the revelation that these men have kept and have replicated in their lives and through their words that we read in our New Testament, if we don't believe in this revelation then our quote-unquote belief in Jesus is going to be in question. So it is the basis for Jesus' request for unity, verse 21a, that they all may be one. We've talked about this at length in several sections of this high priestly prayer. So we talked about this, that there is a visible unity that is to, to be experienced within the body of Christ. It is this unity to the Holy Spirit creates and makes available for us to experience and that visible unity that is to exist within the church is predicated on the invisible unity that has been created with the universal church at the instant of our salvation. Remember, you and I are invisibly united to every believer of every age on every continent through all time. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia, in Korea, in China, in the Middle East, and South America, we are invisibly united together, united together in our union with Christ. And in the here and now, you and I are to experience a visible unity that is the result of this invisible unity that has been established for us. So we cannot be outwardly unified if we are not inwardly unified through spiritual regeneration. This is why the church of Jesus Christ is to be comprised 
of saved individuals. Our unity together is built upon, it is dependent upon, our being born again by the Spirit of God through a common committed belief in the person of Jesus Christ. When we don't agree, when we don't have unity, is it because we see something different about how we are to live our lives and what the principles and the priorities of the church are supposed to be? You see, this is one of the problems that plagues the modern church today, is that the redeemed church has been saturated with the unredeemed seeker, if you will, and everything is done with the mindset of what will the unbeliever think? And how will the unbeliever respond to that? And what do we have to do to get the unbeliever to make that commitment? So we change the worship. We change the location. We change the meeting times. We change the message in order to make this word acceptable as opposed to consistent with what has been revealed in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So if we are going to be unified visibly and outwardly, it will be built upon and predicated through spiritual regeneration. There's a reason the Bible tells us that we are not to be joined together with the unbeliever. Because there's vast differences in those individual lives. We won't get too far off on that. So number two, as we're looking at the source of unity, number two in this is the example of unity. The example of unity that Jesus is praying for that you and I are to pursue in our church life is explained here as we continue through verse 21. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So the example of unity is Jesus and the Father. Again, this is something that has already been introduced. It's the same example found in John 17, verse 11. Just look a few verses up. And in this verse, Jesus prays that the eleven may be one, even as He and the Father are one. So that example that is to take place in the lives of the disciples, these eleven men, is the same example of what is to take place in the lives of the church today. We are to be united as Jesus and the Father are united. So Jesus and the Father, as we've looked at, are united in character and nature. There's no difference in who they are. There's no difference in their holiness. There's no difference in their glory. There is no difference between the Father and the Son, so much so that Jesus would say, if you know the Father, excuse me, if you know the Son, then you already know the Father. They are united in purpose and they are united in mission. Their unified purpose and mission is to redeem lost man and to restore the glory that man was initially created in. If that was not the unified purpose and mission, then the Father would not have sent the Son to come into the world that He created and to become the atoning sacrifice so that we could be saved. They're unified in their mission and their purpose. They're also unified in truth. The truth given by the Father to the Son and revealed to the world is exactly the same. No difference, no distinction. So the example of unity that you and I are to pursue is the example of unity that exists within the Godhead. Number three, 
there is a purpose in this unity. As verse 21 concludes, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are to pursue unity as it exists between the Father and the Son so that the world may believe that you sent me. Think about this. Think about the religious leaders that Jesus encountered all through his ministry. They believed that they knew who God was. They believed that they knew God's Word. And when this upstart comes onto the scene and begins to change everything that they've heard and everything that they believed, they had a choice. They were either going to believe in this revelation or they were not going to believe in that revelation. And of course we know how that worked out, don't we? The vast majority of the religious leaders and the Jews of Jesus' day rejected him as the Messiah. And as a result of that, there was no unity between the believers and their Jewish quote-unquote brethren. So the purpose of unity is so that the world may know that the Father sent Jesus into the world. So the unity that Jesus prays for is to be an observable, visible unity that others can see. When the world sees the unity that exists within the body of Christ, it is a validation of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to reveal the truth about who the Father is. And in doing so, He came to establish God's spiritual kingdom and provide redemption for the lost through the cross. Through the cross. Our belief in and our commitment to this revelation of Jesus is demonstrated by the visible unity within the church. So that visible unity that exists within Christians is an indication that we possess a genuine belief in the one the Father has sent. Think about this. Think about if a third of our congregation was made up of people who were not born again and we advocated spending a certain amount of our budgeted money on missions and evangelism, there are probably some who would say, well, why would we do that? That seems like a waste of money. Shouldn't we be doing other things for us? When we think about ministry initiatives and the lost, I don't understand why we would ever do such a thing, it creates division within the body of Christ. That's why the church needs to be made up of the redeemed. Our visible unity exists because we have a genuine belief in the one the Father has sent. Now, as a bit of a review and a bit of an application, the unity that we're talking about, this visible unity that we are to experience and the world is to see, is so poignantly exp- explained in a singular verse in the book of Philippians. Verse, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul is explaining through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
how the church is to experience unity. Being of the same mind does not mean that we all share the same likes and dislikes. That would be completely impossible for that to be true. Nor does it mean that there is complete agreement on all the secondary doctrinal issues that godly men are going to differ over. You have essentials, you have non-essentials. But what it does is it signifies that true believers are controlled by a common commitment to the supremacy of the revealed word in Jesus Christ. Brother, I want to tell you, when we're unified on that, there's a lot we can be unified about. Maintaining the same love means that we love each other equally. It doesn't mean that we have the same emotional commitment to everyone, which again would be impossible. The love in view here is agape love, this divine love, the love that is birthed by the Holy Spirit in us. It's not of emotional attraction. It's one of will and choice. I choose to love you even though we are vastly different and we don't necessarily agree about absolutely everything. I choose to love you in the love of the Lord. This love is expressed when believers are devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Being united in spirit literally means being one-souled. It refers to a passionate, common commitment to the same spiritual goals, which should be the Great Commission, which should be to make disciples, which should be to go out and evangelize. By definition, of being one-souled excludes, excludes such divisive attitudes as personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, and countless other examples of the sinful byproduct of self-love. The last thing that Paul identifies here in this example of unity is being intent on one purpose. That means they are of the same mind. They love each other and are united in spirit. They have the same goal, which is very simply advancing the kingdom of God. We will never be able to experience that kind of unity if we don't possess a common commitment to the revealed truth of the Word of God as expressed in the life and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, because we are influenced by the presence of sin and the power of sin, we will never have the exact kind of unity that exists within the Godhead, right? But we are to pursue it. We are to pursue that kind of unity so that the world will believe that Jesus is the real deal. And they see Jesus as the real deal through the lives that we live committed to His revelation as expressed to us through the Word of God. When the world doesn't see unity within the body of Christ, it is an indication that there is a lack of commitment and devotion to who Jesus revealed Himself to be to who the disciples believed Jesus to be. Anytime we don't have that kind of unity within our church, it means that we are expressing something that is inconsistent with what we profess to believe, what we profess to, believe to be true about who Jesus is and about what it is that He requires of us. So the purpose of this unity continues through a shared glory. We see this in verse 22. Jesus says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one just as we are one. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what this means, and you can read a variety of commentaries and scholars who will have any number of two or three different examples of how this could be true. But as we understand this, generally glory is the praise and the adoration that is due to someone because of their power and position. And so God holds this unique position that makes Him worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In our text, as we've already looked at, glory has a specific meaning of the divine nature and character of God. And this is what Jesus has revealed in His earthly ministry. So it is very likely that Jesus is saying that the nature and the character of the Father given to the Son in His human form and through His earthly ministry, Jesus is giving to those who will believe the Word about who He is and those who will believe the Word of the disciples. So a shared glory then is the nature and character of God expressed through the lives of those who believe that Jesus is the revealed character and nature of God. Stated another way, it is you and I becoming more and more like Christ by displaying His nature and His character through the ongoing transformation of the work of the Holy Spirit as we submit ourselves to the revealed Word of God. You and I do not possess the glory and the nature of God in the fullness of what that means. But what you and I have the capacity to do through the work of the Holy Spirit in us is to reveal something about the nature and the character of God. And in doing so, the glory of the Father has been passed to the Son and the Son passes that same glory to those who believe in Him as we allow His nature and His character to be expressed through us. Now, we can never fully display the nature and character of God, but we can certainly display a life that increasingly looks more and more like Jesus. I've said this many, many times. An old pastor that I used to sit under used to say, I may not be what I ought to be, but I thank God that I'm not what I used to be. And this ought to be what we say about ourselves with each passing week and month and year of our life is that although I am not perfect, I am increasingly being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's ultimate purpose for each of us. So this purpose in an example of unity continues in verse 23 as we see this through a shared love. The purpose of unity is expressed through a shared glory and also through a shared love. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You've heard this before, right? Jesus has said this all throughout the farewell discourse. He has continually prayed these same kinds of things in this prayer. And so Jesus prays not only for our unity, but He prays for the perfection of our unity. Meaning that we approach the fullness of the divine unity that exists within the Godhead. Not just in unity and core beliefs and in common concerns for each other, but the perfection of unity 
that displays a common commitment and devotion to the revealed nature and character of God through the life of Jesus. This perfection of unity is the result that we, all who believe in Jesus Christ, look at this, are loved by the Father in the same way the Father loves the Son. Think about that. You think about the love that the Father has for the one and only. The one who is exactly like Him. The one that has emanated from Him. The love that God has for the Father, excuse me, the love that the Father has for the Son, Jesus says, is the same for the way He loves those who will believe through this Word. Whatever we can say about the Father's love for the Son, we can also say is true about the Father's love for us. How do we know that's true? This love of the Father is supremely expressed first and foremost through the cross. God doing what He did not have to do. God doing what we were not deserving of Him doing. He has done for us. The love the Father has for the Son is the same love that He has for you and I today. Now the second major thing that Jesus prays for, and this is going to end very quickly, Jesus prays for our reunion in glory. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So what Jesus prays here is not a request that the Father change something or that the Father make a provision for something that was not already determined. He's simply expressing His desire, which is perfectly consistent with the Father's will, and that is that all believers experience the fullness of the glory of Jesus. Now, the eleven walked with Him, and they heard Him teach, And they saw Him perform all of these miracles that we've studied thus far. And they experienced firsthand a significant display of Jesus' glory, even though that glory was still greatly veiled from them. You and I didn't get to experience any of that. For the most part, we experience His glory very, very differently than they did. We read about it. We see examples of it and we go, wow, that must have been incredible to experience. Perhaps you and I have even been blessed enough to experience the glory of Christ in some way while on this earth through our relationship with Him. But this request that Jesus makes goes beyond the provision for a room in the Father's house that He introduced to them in the beginning of the farewell discourse when they were overcome with sorrow at Jesus' words that He was leaving them and they couldn't come with them, but He would come and get them and provide a room for them in the Father's house. This request goes way beyond that. This request invites us into the very presence of God in heaven. 
which the eleven did not experience. Jesus invites us to where He was before He became God incarnate and where Jesus currently is and where where He will be for all of eternity. Because we live in the land of plenty and because we have the overwhelming vast majority of our basic needs met, we have need for very, very little in our lives Our longing for heaven is sometimes lacking, isn't it? How often do we think about heaven? How strong is our longing for heaven? I remember being a young Christian, 23, 24 years old, and hearing people talk about heaven and singing songs about heaven. And in my spiritual youth, And in my spiritual stupidity, I would think to myself, well, gee, I don't want to go to heaven now. There's still too much I want to experience. There's still too much I want to do. There's still too much I want to learn. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought that about heaven? Well, for many, there is so much in the world that they want to experience. They feel like if they were to go to heaven now, they would be shortchanged of something incredible that the world has to offer. But the glory of Jesus is the full glory of the Father who has loved Jesus from eternity past. And my friend, I'll tell you, there is absolutely nothing that could ever, ever compare to that experience. And it's not going to be just for an instant. It's going to be forever and forever. I remember when my children were very, very young, they would ask me, Dad, what is heaven like? Oh my goodness, they're five years old and he wants to know what heaven is like. How do you explain such an abstract reality to a five-year-old? Well, I very simply said this. Well, think about the funnest day you've ever had in your life. Think about the happiest day you've ever had in your life. Heaven will be a hundred times better than that. I don't know that they could ever really calculate that or compute that or ever put anything tangible to that, but how do we explain the joy and the glory and the fulfillment of heaven apart from our not ever being there? We can only imagine, right? We can only imagine what the glory of heaven is like, but you and I are to long for that far more than we long for the temporary physical things that this world has to offer us. No one has ever seen the fullness of God's glory. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. An incredible thing, right? But the full glory of God was veiled. He appeared to Israel in the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Incredible manifestations of the glory of God, but still significantly veiled. He appeared to Isaiah in the temple, but all Isaiah could see was just the train of the robe. And that was an incredible sight. So much so that Isaiah said, woe is me. And yet the fullness of God's glory was veiled. He has appeared to man in the form of angels. And those have been incredible experiences. But it is still the veiled glory of God. The disciples 
Peter, James, and John got to see a little bit more of the glory of Christ. In Matthew chapter 17, 17, verse 2, at the transfiguration, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became white as light, and I can promise you that that is still a veiled representation of the fullness of the glory of Christ. As incredible as that was, and oh, by the way, the disciples said, boy, this is a pretty good place to be. I don't ever want to leave from here. That's what heaven's going to be like. I wish I'd been here a lot earlier, and I know I never ever want to leave here. But as incredible as the transfiguration was, it's still a veiled glimpse of His glory. And yet, you and I are one day going to see it and experience it and live in it forever and forever and forever. Time without end. Think about that. We who were once alienated from Him, hostile towards Him, dead in our sin, thoroughly sinful, and completely undeserving, we have this incredible privileged destination awaiting us to be with God in heaven and see the fullness of the glory that exists within the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation of God's Word tells us how this is true for us. Ephesians 2, verses 4-7. through But God, in spite of our alienation, in spite of our hostility, in spite of our being dead spiritually in our sin, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, and even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is so thoroughly and so completely true. And for so many Christians, these words are read and the response can be, what about right now? That's all good. That's all down in the future. But what about right now? And we completely miss the sufficiency that exists in our relationship with Christ and the reality that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we have been joined with Him. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us and makes available to us the fullness of His joy and His peace and as much of a knowledge of God as we could ever hope to attain in our life. I wonder if you will be like the many, many who have said, even if heaven wasn't the end destination, giving my life to Christ was still worth it. If He's worth it, in the now. 
our experience in heaven is going to be exponentially more worthwhile than anything we've ever experienced in this world. Well, these last two verses, in many respects, are a summary of what Jesus has prayed for the eleven and for us. Verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. It's a summary of the discourse. It's a summary of the prayer. It's a summary of his purpose and his mission that we would be united in him, that we would know him and continually grow in our knowledge of him, and that we would know the fullness of the love of God. Well, John MacArthur suggests that there are seven words that summarize this request for the 11 and future believers. And these will go fairly quickly, but they'll stay up there for you to fill in the blank. The first word is preservation. This comes from verse 11 where Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. This is the spiritual preservation that was the basis for everything that Jesus prayed for the 11, that the Father would preserve their spiritual commitment to the Son. The second word is jubilation. This comes from verse 13 where Jesus says that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So the question is how much joy did Jesus possess? Well, Jesus possessed all the joy of the Father. Even on the eve of His death, Jesus is still filled with the joy that is in the Father. The third word is liberation. This comes from verse 15, where Jesus prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one, our spiritual enemy, Satan himself, who roars like a lion, seeking those that he might devour, coming against the believer, to wage spiritual battle, to deceive, to distort, to discourage. The fourth word is sanctification. This comes from verse 17, where Jesus prays that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is our ongoing confirmation into the image of Christ that more and more our nature, our character, our attitudes our actions, our conduct, all of that looks more and more like what is modeled for us through the life of Christ. The fifth word is unification. This comes from verse 21. That they may all be one. You know one of the worst experiences for any teenager, for any youth group, member, and for many, many adults, is the cliques that express, you're not unified with me, you're not a part of me, we don't want you, we don't care about you, 
Jesus prays that they may all be one, even as you and I are one. Number six, association. I desire, this comes from verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. We talked about this positional union that we have with Christ, that we are in Him by virtue of our faith in Him, but one day we will be physically with Him when this physical life is over and we are ushered into His presence for all of eternity. The last word is glorification, also from verse 24, that they may see My glory. The unveiled, untarnished, undiminished glory of God is what He prays for us. And you can bet your bottom dollar that that's exactly what's going to happen. We will see His glory. As we think about all that Jesus has prayed, not only for us who believe through the Word, but for those disciples, all that He talked about through this farewell discourse, no matter what it is we're going to face in our life, we have a hope. And that hope is contained in the truth of the Word, the very person of Christ, who perfectly expresses the nature and the character of the Father, His love, His provision, His protection, all that He has done for us and will do for us is our hope. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are so grateful for what You you have revealed to us about Yourself through Your Word. And God, I pray that You would create within us a burden for those who know nothing of this truth, who live their lives in quiet desperation, who mark their days with a hopeless utility, wondering why am I here and what is my purpose and where am I going. Father, I pray that through our union with You and through our union within Your body, that our lives would point them to the place of their hope. May they see Christ in us. May You use us as Your hands and Your feet and Your voice to draw others to You. And Father, as we live out the days of our lives, would our lives very clearly express an an absolutely faithful, devoted commitment to the revelation of who Jesus is as penned for us in the pages of our Bible. God, we thank You so much for removing the blinders from our eyes and allowing us to know and understand. We give You thanks for the great love with which You have loved us. And may You find within us a growing love for You. We pray these things in Jesus' name.